Please open your Bibles to James 2, 1 through 7. The passage can be found in your pew Bibles on page 1011. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, which is the translation that Mr. Jeremy Fuller will be preaching from. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs to the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? May God bless to our understanding this reading from his holy word. Please uh, keep your Bibles open to James chapter 2. And I almost want to say after that song, you all dismissed. That was a very appropriate song to sing. Let's pray. Lord, this is your word. It is a, a treasure trove of wisdom and life. Lord, I pray that you would minister to us through your word, that you would speak, speak through one of your servants, Lord that you would uh, be glorified through this time, Father, and that your church would be edified. Pour out your spirit on us now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, last time I preached, I introduced you all to the fictional character Screwtape. As a reminder, Screwtape is a character created by C.S. Lewis for the Screwtape Letters. This is a book of letters written from one demon to another in order to show the nature of human sin and temptation. And uh, it, it's, it, he does it very well. And one thing that Screwtape says in his letters to his nephew Wormwood is an axiom of what he believes is a foundation for life and existence. He says, to be is to be in competition. Well, what does he mean by this? Basically, when he said the the fact that we exist means that we are in competition with everything else that exists. My good is my good, he says, and your good is your good. Well, unless I can find a way to make it my good. He says in the animal world, this takes the place of one creature eating another creature. He says that this is foundational to who we are and what we believe. This is the axiom of hell, is what he says. And we have such statements like this in our culture. We say, you have to look out for number one. We say, it's a dog-eat-dog world or survival of the fittest. And according to such a view, people, other people are either a resource to be used, competition to be gotten rid of, or nothing of real importance whatsoever. 
and to the demon screw tape, and maybe, I dare say to others, there is no other possibility. The idea that anyone could love another person without any thought to gain is preposterous. It's impossible. No one loves like that, screw tape says. But is that true? Well, those who are familiar with the God of Scripture, with Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, they know differently. While we may not fully grasp the nature of selfless love, love that has no thought of personal gain, Scripture declares that this is the love, the very love that God shows to his people and even to his whole creation. The Apostle John declares that God is love. Or consider the words of Christ when he's caused people to love their enemies because God pours down his blessings on the just and the unjust alike. These are his words in Matthew 4, 5. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And not only his love for his creation, but consider his special covenant love for his people, which he has poured out on them. God has declared that he chose his people not for anything good in them, not because they were the greatest nation, not because they were wise or wonderful or beautiful, but solely by his sovereign grace and choice. These are the words that he spoke through Moses. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh in Egypt. And that is Deuteronomy 7, 7 to 8. And now let's look to, to Jesus. Jesus came to earth. He lived, he died, and was risen again for those who were still God's enemies. Those who hated God in thought, heart, and deed. This is Jesus. This is our Savior. And because this is who Jesus is, what he, and because of what he has done for his people, James gives us a very stark warning and a command in our passage today. Now, previously, we, James showed us what religion is that is pure and pleasing to God. It is religion that, uh, let, me, let me read the verse here, uh, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And perhaps James now is uh, anticipation, anticipating a response to that. Orphans, widows, but they have nothing. They don't have anything that could benefit the church in any way. Why would we want to visit them? Well, says James, because that's what Jesus did for you. And he says, you who claim to be Christians, how are you behaving towards others in this way? And his, let me read his stark warning again. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. The Lord of glory, the glorious one, Jesus, who is glorious beyond all measure, who is in heaven, who had all divine right and glory and dominion, set aside his divine right. 
He took on the role of a servant. He lived on earth in poverty as we, as we just sung. He who owned all creation and power and authority and glory and therefore had nothing to gain by coming to earth, this one died on the cross. He died on the cross for all the sins of those who will believe in him. And James says to the Christians here, and you would call yourself a Christian? And you would claim to be his follower while showing favoritism? The two cannot, they should not be together. Now what is favoritism, or as it says here, partiality? And why is it so bad? Well, James goes on and gives a clear example in our text. Probably one of the more basic examples, how we respond to those who have money versus those who do not. Look again in verse 2 and 3. If a man wearing gold ring comes and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and you say to the rich man, yes, yes, come in. It's such an honor to have you here. Please sit here up front. Can I get you a water? But then the poor man comes in and say, oh, I think there's a stool back there. Or sit on the ground at my feet. Literally, the Greek says, sit underneath my feet. That's favoritism. That's showing distinctions. And that is what James is speaking out against here today. Now, why would, what would motivate a church to act this way? Why would a church show such favoritism to a rich man and show such disdain for a poor man? Well, there's something to be gained in doing so, right? The rich man as well, well, he's rich. And there's a chance if we're nice enough to him, he might share his riches with us. But the poor man, all he has is shabby clothing and sad stories. And he might ask us for something. And what are we, a charity? So you see... Showing preferential treatment, looking at people like this with a calculating eye, is asking the question, what do I have to gain or to lose from this person? And don't think for an instance that this is limited to wealth. It could be power. It could be beauty. It could be affection, popularity, approval, acceptance, pleasure, security, comfort. The list could go on and on. But let's dig further. What is at the heart of this calculating eye? Why would somebody look at everyone and and analyze them and say, what do I have to gain from this person? What resources do they have that I or we need? Well, very basically, it comes down to who are you serving? Are you serving God in, in his church? Or are you serving yourself? Are you out there to gain a comfortable place for yourself? Are you out there working to serve God and to honor him and to give him glory and praise and spread his gospel. Well, the, when we in the church show favoritism, we are certainly not serving God. Look at verse 4. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? James declares that to make such distinctions in our mind in the church of God is to be judges with evil thoughts. Is that someone, can you, we serve the Lord in such a manner? So to show favoritism in regard to who we reach out to, who we welcome into our church, who we share the gospel with, is to make ourselves the decider of who should and should not receive the mercy and grace of God. Are we the, the deciders of that? Has God made, have God made us a judge of who is worthy of his mercy? Who, who should be given his mercy? Is that our place? 
Now, when we do this, we are making ourselves deciders of things that matters that only God has a right to decide on. Not only this, but we are also using a standard which God does not use. The scriptures declare that God is not a regarder of men. He does not hold esteem for them based off of their wealth, their looks, their charm, their possessions, their place in the world. And this is true both in regards to judgment and salvation. Peter the Apostle, he says that he refers to God as the Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. So God is not like an earthly judge who might give a lighter sentence because they are a celebrity or famous or a politician or they try their best or they didn't mean it. Yet so often we are, we are guilty of trying to project our values onto God, our standard onto him, rather than submitting to his. Are you guilty of that? Am I? Now consider salvation. Does God save people based off of their economic status? Their circle of friends? Their sparkling smile? Their fashionable clothing? Their good heart? No. In fact, God has set his affection on the weak, the lost, the despised of this world. Why has he set his affection on these? To make it clear that salvation is by his grace and power alone. Not that anything good in man, so that no one may boast. Look at verse 5. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? Or consider Paul's words to the Corinthians. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 2. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And this is the truth, the glorious truth of salvation. Nothing we can do, nothing we can accomplish, nothing we can be adds anything to God or earns anything from him. Let me say that again. Nothing we can be, nothing we can do, nothing we can accomplish can add anything to God or earn anything from him. Do you truly believe this? Do you realize that you cannot keep God's holy standard but fall short of it daily? Or do you think that you've been very gracious by attending church, by reading your Bible, by going to ministries and spending your time uh, praying and being about the works of God? Do you think that you have earned a rather decent credit for yourself at heaven's gate? No, you haven't. I haven't. None of us had. Anything we could do for God, even if it wasn't tainted with our sin, would just be what we owe God, we owe him as his creatures. And anything we receive from him is only received because he has promised to give it, not because we have earned it. But somebody might ask, why did he determine to save anyone then? Surely God gains something from saving people. No, he gains nothing. God is complete 
and lacking in nothing. You and I bring him nothing that he did not already have in eternity past. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit dwelt in perfect and complete love, glory, fellowship for all eternity. Do not think that for a moment that God created us or saves anyone because there is some lack in his existence. There is none. So why did God save? When the goodness and love and kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Titus chapter 3. This is the God who saves us. How, then, can we show favoritism in our midst? As those who bear his name, how can we do so, and in so doing, act just like the world, dishonoring the poor and the have-nots, and sometimes worse than the world? Not only this, but such behavior dishonors God. Well, how does such behavior dishonor God? By honoring those who curse his name and mistreat his people. Look at verse 6 and 7. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Now is uh, James here saying that all rich people are wicked tyrants? No, certainly not. The poor can act this way too. And certainly there are many, many generous, wealthy people in God's church. Yet the truth is that this is more of a stark norm for this world, that uh, the, those who have uh, power in the form of wealth will uh, some, oftentimes uh, suppress the poor, uh, mistreat the poor. Consider a first century example. Uh, in the book of Acts, we read about Paul in Ephesus. He goes in there preaching the Gospels, and the silversmiths hear about this. And they're upset because they're wealthy and their wealth and their lucrative trade in idol-making was put on the line. So what did they do? They had Paul dragged into court. They tried to get him arrested. He was uh, dragged into the um, arena in Ephesus. And these were the people that the Christians that James is writing to were honoring. But let me, as an aside, warn you that James is not here He is not calling for us to show blanket contempt for the haves in favor of the have-nots. Do you understand that? James is not calling us here to then do the reverse, to show favoritism to the poor and hate the wealthy, to scorn the rich for the poor, to favor the minority and hate the majority, to think that the poor are somehow morally better than the rich, because to do so would be just as much favoritism, no matter how you spin it. Yet there's a point I want to make here. Isn't it curious what we are willing to tolerate? What we are willing to turn a blind eye to when somebody has something that we want? Or can do something for us or has some sort of hold over us? An example that came to my mind is from the movie Stardust. Uh, The uh, uh, main character in the movie Stardust is a young man named Tristan. 
and he's besmirched with a young girl in the town who's quite lovely, uh, but she's kind of spoiled. She's a bit of a princess. And in one scene of the movie, Tristan is working in a shop, a busy, crowded shop where there's a line uh, from the counter going back to the door. And the girl, knowing that she has him around her finger, prances up to the front of the line, cuts in front of everyone, and places her order. Tristan was so enamored with this girl, with her beauty, with her popularity, that he was willing to overlook what he saw there. That degree of selfishness in order to, because he wanted this girl so much. Well, fortunately, Tristan grew in the movie and realized what she was. But how are we that way? How do we turn a blind eye to certain people because they have something we want or they have some control over us? Maybe it's tolerating a despicable person because they have lots of money. Or maybe it's putting up with a political movement or brand of music in our church that's unbiblical because, hey, maybe it'll make the church relevant or popular. Maybe we're, un- we're willing to overlook the lack of faith in a young man or a profane blasphemous heart in a girl if they are charming or cute enough. Or maybe we try and get in with a popular crowd even though, those, even though that crowd curses the name of Christ because we want to be popular too. Or we're afraid to stand up to a boss who wants us to do something underhanded. Or we won't rebuke a child who needs it because we want them to love us and tell us we're good parents. Do any of these describe you? Can you think of anything else that would fit into this? Now, what is behind the heart of such behavior? Again, it is because they have something we want. But why do we want that thing so much? Why does that thing have such a control over our lives that we will determine whether someone's worth their time because they can either give it to us or take it away or aren't important at all? As you can see, sin has layers to it. It's never just dealing with the top of the sin. The favoritism isn't the final issue here. It goes down deeper than that. I was like, uh, using an illustration to describe this uh, earlier this week. Sin is like a Russian nesting doll. If you're not familiar, a Russian nesting doll is a gourd-shaped wooden doll that's hollow. You pop it open, and there's another doll inside. And you pop it open, and there's another doll inside, all the way down to this itty-bitty little adorable doll. And that's what sin's like, except you pop sin open, and it's larger and more grotesque. And you pop that open, and it's even larger and more grotesque than you thought until you get to this terrible mess on the inside. So why, what is at the heart of this thing that we want, that we treat other people with favoritism in order to get? Well, if you're prone to act this way, to fear people, to give preference and favoritism, it likely means that something else is your functional God rather than God himself. What do I mean by this? It means that you are looking to this other thing, looking for peace or comfort or hope or security or identity in this thing rather than God. For the Christians that James is writing to, they still equal, equated money with security. So they saw this rich man come in and they smoothed him and they, wanted, they gave him the great seat and they doubted God's provision and said money is what is going to bring us safety and security now. So whoever had the money had their hearts. 
And the thing is, we can even use God in this way, too. We can, serve, we can worship God and say that we're worshiping God, but we're really worshiping him in order to get something else from him. So even then, something else still ends up being our functional God. But God calls us to love him for who he is, not for what he can give to us, because in him is ultimate security. He is the only thing that is worth worshiping and loving Now, in his book, When People Are Big and God is Small, Ed Welsh calls us leaky love cups. Now, what do I mean by this? Have you ever tried drinking from a paper cup with a hole in the bottom? This water is always trickling out. You maybe get a a sip in before it's all gone. Well, Ed Welsh says each of us are like that. We are all trying to fill our hearts with something, and we're all leaking. So what do we do? Well, idolatry is to go to other things that leak, other things that are leaky love cups, other people, and trickling streams and trying to fill your cup up with that. And it's always running out, so you're always trying to get more into it. That's what we're doing when we're um, following after other things, when we're trying to get things from people, when we're showing favoritism. But what Ed Welsh says the solution is, is that we need to be filled by God. We need to bring our leaky cups to him, so that we can drink from that torrent that never runs dry. Because the peace we're looking for, the security we're looking for, the acceptance and the love we're looking for, we cannot find that fully in humans. We cannot find that in one another. We can only find what really lasts eternally in God. So he calls us to bring our hearts to him, to be filled by him, to be filled by the inexhaustible fountain of all the needs of our hearts and lives. Now imagine if you did that perfectly. Imagine if you brought your heart to God, if you were fully filled by him. How would that change your relationship with others? If you genuinely, with Paul said, I can, be, uh, I can um, do all things through Christ who strengthens me, how would this change how you serve other people? What would it look like? Well, people would no longer be a resource to be consumed. They would no longer be competition to be defeated. We would no longer be afraid of them. They would no longer be a liability to be gotten rid of or something pointless and useless to just be ignored. Instead, because we are flowing over with the provision, the grace of God, we will have grace and love and provision to spare. Because, we, because those who do so draw from God inexhaustibly, other people will become objects of love rather than limited and finite resources to use up and to discard. People won't be competition anymore. Imagine what this looks like in your life, to no longer look at people with that calculating eye. Imagine what this would look like in the church to be so overfilling, full with the love of God that you have no second thought about what you have to gain or to lose from others. To be able to love others freely. To serve freely. Even to rebuke or be rebuked fe- freely without fear or anger. To not be people pleasers. To not be people avoiders. To no longer worry about what they think or will think. To have welcoming, expansive hearts 
that do not neglect the poor in our midst, to no longer avoid the awkward, to no longer avoid the uncomfortable, the struggling, or the different, to make amends quickly rather than allowing grudges to linger, all because of Christ, all because of God pouring out his grace into our hearts. Imagine what such a life and what such a community would look like to the, to the world. Like screw tape, they would probably puzzle at it. They'd probably wonder at it and say, there's got to be something else going on there. But oh, will heaven rejoice to see it. You see, God is such an inexhaustible source of grace and life and love and provision. The cross of Jesus testifies to this. Those who draw deeply from him by faith, will find, by faith in Christ will find contentment without measure, joy that knows no bounds, peace that is inexpressible. And the church will be a garden of joy and love and abundance. Now, I know I've shared a lot of illustrations so far, but I have one more, and I think this is a very uh, pointed one. Uh, this whole image makes me think of uh, a proverb that I heard once. It's a, uh, I believe it's a proverb from the East, from China. A man once wanted to see what heaven and hell were like. So he was taken to hell. And he found this beautiful banquet table full of all the greatest foods you could eat. Delicious, scrumptious. And everyone around it was drawn and poor and, and, and thin and haggard. Why? Well, he noticed instantly that their chopsticks were all 12 feet long. They couldn't feed themselves, so they were all miserable. So next, the man was taken to heaven. And to his surprise, he saw the same thing there. Beautiful, beautiful table. All the food you could ever want on it. But all the people around it were healthy and happy and laughing and full. Do you know why? Because they were feeding each other. They were using their 12-inch chopsticks to feed the person across from them. So which table do you sit at? Which one do you think is God's will for his church? One is the table of Christ. One is the table of the world. Would you be full to overflowing? Or would you be eternally starving and fighting one another and gnawing? Christian, if you have been saved by God's grace, if you have been, had his, his, felt, experienced his love poured out on you, not for anything you did, but merely by his good grace and love, why would you do anything else differently to others? Therefore, James' call to us today is to do likewise. Because of what Christ did, because of what God did for us on Christ's behalf, gaining nothing from us, but giving us his love, let us, with the same grace and mercy and love he poured out on us, love others without favoritism. Christian, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ with favoritism but with God's grace and love. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you have uh, been so merciful and gracious and loving to us. We thank you, and we rejoice in your love in Christ Jesus. We confess, Lord, that we have so oftentimes still thought, sought after our own needs. We have looked at others with a calculating eye. We have said, what do I have to gain or to lose from them? Please forgive us, Father. 
and help us by your spirit to love in the way that Christ has loved us, in the way that you have loved us, so that your, the world will know that your people are Christ's disciples because we love one another and that your name would be glorified and Christ would be exalted. In his name we pray. Amen.